Hey guys, look, McElroy from Mets Performance Consulting. Welcome back to another episode of the Physiology Secrets Podcast. Episode 94, we are rapidly approaching on episode 100 uh, ever since we've ramped it up. So we're due to hit that in about two weeks' time. And, and in preparation of our 100th episode, it got me thinking in the way to the office in the car, I thought I'd go through the, the top five things that I've learned over the journey. So ever since we started up Mets four years ago, a lot of things have changed. My mindset's changed a lot. I've learned a phenomenal amount of information. I thought I'd just roll out the top five things uh, that I've learned over the last four years. Number one, uh, performance is 50% science and 50% art. And you might be surprised to hear me say this, given that we have obviously uh, our philosophy is a science-backed approach. We all, will always maintain that, that approach, that philosophy of, of evidence-based training. However, that doesn't mean that everybody is going to adapt according to what a piece of research is, is suggesting. We will always default to a science-backed approach. So for example, if we see somebody's VO2 max testing results, they, they come in at a, and their FVO2 is, is rapidly declining at the back end of a test, we know that that means that they need to improve their aerobic power. And the best way to do that, generally speaking, for 90% of people is to do two to four minute efforts at 95% VO2 max pace with a one-to-one work to rest ratio. However, that doesn't always work. As I said, 90% of the time it will, but 10% of the time it won't. So uh, this is where the art of coaching really comes into it. And that's where instead of doing those efforts, you look at, you're still doing science-based training. You don't just pick a random session to do, but you need to manipulate that session. So you might do 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. A good session for that is 110 to 120% VO2 max for 30 seconds, and then dropping it back to 50% for the recovery as opposed to a complete rest. So uh, performance is 50% science and 50% art. Start with the science, but you're obviously going to need to adapt according to the individual and how they're, they're adapting as a person. The second thing is that coaching is a two-way street. Uh, I, I firmly believe that if you have decent knowledge of physiology, that you will perform as good or probably better being self-coached than if you actually have a coach. Uh, and the reason I say that is... Uh, I'm using myself as an example. I can use Calvin Amos as another really great example. Um, Calvin, I used to coach. He was my first, actually sec, second, second ever coaching client. Um, and, and he improved really rapidly, but he was also doing a Bachelor of Exercise in Sports Science at the time. So he has, has a good knowledge of his, of physiology and of training principles. And bit by bit, he, he was with me for uh, probably about 18 months or so. And he, he's now self-coached and he is absolutely blowing the competition out of the water. And the reason I think it's really effective to be self-coached, if you know the physiology, is because nobody knows your body better than you. There is, there is no, no coach can get inside your head and, and see, or get inside your body and actually feel what you're feeling. If you are smart, if you know, if you know enough about training physiology and how to, to, to get certain training stimuli, and you're very in tune with your body and you properly listen to your body, you will get the best results being self-coached. You will know when to take a rest day. You will know when you can push harder than prescribed. You'll know when you should push not as hard as prescribed. So if you're very in tune with your body, I have no doubt in my mind with a bit of education uh, that being self-coached is the way to go. And that's why I'll never get a coach. The reason I'll get a coach is um, purely from a accountability standpoint to make sure that I'm motivated and doing the sessions. But 
if I if I've scheduled myself a tough session and I feel rubbish, I'll take a rest day. I've been very clear about that because if you have a, a, a big differentiation, a big big difference in your resting heart rate, you're going to get sick fifty percent of the time. So, um, being in tune with your body is is the best way to be. Number three is business is hard. <laughs> if I spoke to Luke from four years ago, uh, you'd have to question whether you do it. And we're in a very good position. So don't get me wrong. This isn't, this isn't, isn't meant to be a pessimistic point. It's just that it is very, very hard. I came into business thinking, Hey, this is easy. Like I, I, everybody, I want VO2 max testing. So everybody's going to want VO2 max testing. It makes sense. You start to train smarter, you get your data, so on and so forth. However, uh, coming out of a, an exercise and sports science degree, having absolutely no business experience or business knowledge, you quickly learn that there is a, it's a, it's a whole new world, uh, marketing, sales, uh, landing pages, you basically have to become an expert at not only communicating your message really simply, so to people that don't have an exercise and sports science degree, so communicating your message very, very simply, the result that you can provide that individual person, uh, but then you also need to learn how to direct traffic to that message and how to build an audience and how to keep them engaged and all that sort of stuff. So uh, definitely the last four years has been the most mentally challenging of my life, but also the most rewarding as well. Would I do it again? I would now knowing what I know, but it is a massive learning curve to go from being essentially a practitioner to then running your own business. Number four is sort of related to number two. So athletes, an athlete's psychology is their worst, is their own worst enemy. Um, we find that athletes, and I'm going to, anybody listening to this, I'm classifying as an athlete, anybody who competes or is, is trying to strive for, for performance enhancement, they are athletes. So Athletes are very driven, almost to the point of exercise addiction for, for a lot of cases. If they, they just want to know, what do I need to do? And then they will just do it. Rain, hail, shine, regardless of how they feel, they're going to go out and do that. The issue with that, obviously, is, as I said before, you need to be in tune with your body. If you feel rubbish, you shouldn't push through a really tough session. Uh, if you're feeling really good, there are situations where you can, if the goal of the session is to make it high, high intensity, then you can push harder than prescribed. So... I feel that that athlete psychology is a is an area where most people can improve, and more so in the sense of if you feel bad, have a rest day. Most people will push through the pain. They'll get sick. They'll get injured. They'll have suboptimal performance. But once you can get in control of that psychology, which again comes down to your own self education, knowing knowing the, the pros and cons of pushing and not pushing and, and how quickly you gain or lose fitness according to rest days and all that sort of stuff. Once you have that, that co the confidence of having that knowledge will then allow you to make better decisions psychologically when you feel good or when you feel bad. And the last point I've got is uh, not to believe everything that you read. And that's, I think that's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of misinformation, particularly in the fitness industry. Um, and a couple of examples I've sort of just got here is to do with detraining. So the, the science will say that if you have one week off of, of absolutely no training, you're going to lose four weeks of mitochondrial mass. So basically, you're going to lose four weeks of fitness. One week off, you lose four weeks of fitness. I mean, that's that's scary when you look at it like that. But you've got to understand that this is a, a very um, – information like this, it needs to be taken into context. This is a very – very, very fit athletes. The fitter you are, the quicker you'll lose it. I do agree with that. However, it's very rare as well, unless you have an injury or a significant illness, you're not going to take two weeks completely off training. Um, 
it does only take one to two, preferably two high-intensity sessions a week, 20 minutes, so 40 minutes of total training, and you're going to maintain all of you. You're going to, yeah, 99% of your vertical max, you're going to maintain it. You're going to keep the mitochondrial density up. You're going to keep all the structures and the muscle up. So my point for this is, is take it with a grain of salt. Don't be like, if I take a week off, I'm going to lose four weeks of fitness. It's, it's not the case. You need to understand the context of it, uh, and people will adapt differently. But, but yes, taking one full week off is very different to even just training once throughout that week. Um, another another common one is VO2 max can only improve 20%. I mean, that's rubbish. I've seen 40% improvement from an untrained to a to a trained person. Again, this is some this is people taking a specific subset of the population saying, hey, we couldn't get anyone to improve more than 20%. So that's the that's the generic rule. Um, for improvement again context is important it's not going to be the case for everybody Um, and then things like ketosis as well and ketosis i don't want to get into a big a big spiel about that but i'm I'm very much against it for anybody who's pushing at any intensity above 60 percent vo2 max Um, you need carbohydrates ketosis is not good Um, and the example i'll give you for that is the it's the um the faster study where what they did was they had two people, sorry, two two different groups. One was a high fat, low carb group. One was a high carb, low fat group. So one was eating lots of carbs. One was only only eating lots of fat. And what they did was they they tested their fat metabolism at the same workload on a treadmill. But the problem was is that they fed. So just before the start of the test or the study, they fed the high carbohydrate group a big sugary drink. And what that does is as soon as you increase your your, your high GI carbohydrates, your sugary drinks, that's going to release a hell of a lot of insulin into your bloodstream. And that and that is what inhibits fat burning. The insulin, the presence of insulin inhibits fat burning, not actually consuming carbohydrates. So as soon as they did that in the study, they've, they've, they've stuffed the results. It's, no, it's not new that insulin inhibits fat burning. So they go run on the treadmill, they say, hey, the high fat group, they're burning fat three times as much fat. So they're going to delay hitting the wall. They're going to have improved performance. That would be the case, but there's no reason to say, there's no no reason why you can't carbohydrate load, control your insulin levels closer to race time so you can still maximize your fat burning during the race. But now you've got a full stack of carbohydrates ready to go for when you increase intensity or as you get towards the end of the race um, to actually improve your performance there. So again, that hasn't been well documented. I I had to go through that with a fine-tooth comb to find the methods of the study to to basically say, hang on, this this isn't right. The reason that they've actually increased their fat burning is because they don't have a heap of insulin in the system. So all I'm saying here for number five is don't believe everything that you read. Or if you do, make sure you critically appraise it. Don't just take it as gospel. Have a look at the methods. What, what, like Why are they coming to this conclusion? And, and basically ask why. I always, always question everything when it comes to that. So uh, that's it for me today, guys. To summarize, the top five things is that 50%, so performance is 50% art, 50% science. Start with science, but then you need to adapt to the individual. Coaching is a two-way street. I do strongly believe that self-coached individuals will be very successful if they have the physiological um, education behind them and they know the type of training they should do. Business is hard, but I don't have any regrets whatsoever. Love it. Uh, and then athletes, psychology is their own worst enemy. Again, when you have that education, you know when to push hard, you know when to back off. You can make more educated decisions. Nobody else knows your body better than you do. And then don't believe everything you read as well. All right, take it, take it with context. Um, 
and really try to critically appraise and ask why somebody is saying something, especially if it's very controversial and against the grain. That's it for me, guys. I look forward to catching up again soon and, and on our way to episode 100. Speak soon. Bye. Sorry, guys. I just want to quickly clarify what I mean about coaching as a two-way street. I just listened back to the audio and it probably wasn't quite quite as clear as I'd like it to be. So I mentioned that if you if you are self-coached, if you have a good understanding of physiology, then nobody will understand your body better than you. So you'd be very successful being self-coached. However, I'm not anticipating that everybody's going to have that, that in-depth physiological knowledge that you need to be able to make those informed decisions. So if you do have a coach, use them as the expert in physiology and how in training adaptation and, and what type of training methods to do. But you need to communicate with your coach how you're feeling. If you're feeling really good, tell your coach you're feeling good. And you could you might need an increase in intensity or an increase in stimulus. Take advantage of, you, of yourself feeling really good and maximize that training session. Likewise, if you're feeling bad, you need to communicate that to your coach so that they change the session or they recommend a rest day. But there's the people that just blindly follow the training recommendations from a coach, whether they feel good or whether they feel bad, they're the guys and girls that are going to really struggle with injury and illness. So if you have the knowledge, you'll be successful self-coached. If you don't have the knowledge, then you need to engage a coach so they can have that physiological understanding, but you need to communicate with that coach how you're feeling if you want the best results. Hopefully that clears it up uh, and I'll speak to you next week.